You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. On episode 106 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, we cover all sorts of things. Number one, I'm pointing the finger. It's you that are the problem with Warhammer, not Games Workshop. Number two... We have a letter from Chris, who is a new listener, and he discusses how Warhammer is therapy for him and his veteran friends. And we also have a, well, here's an idea that was brought about by our buddy Leroy Jenkins, and it is playing Warhammer in different real-life locations, which might sound like, what? But just, just listen to the segment, okay? So what have I been up to this week? Well, I have had a total Beasts of Chaos boner. And I have been painting a shit ton of Beasts of Chaos. So I I have had a Beasts of Chaos army for practically a year now and have never touched it or played with it. And uh, that's that's kind of a problem. So I somehow got this up my butt and I decided, hey, I want to start playing and painting Beasts of Chaos. So I've got a bunch of Doom Bulls. I got a bunch of Dragon Ogres. So far, I don't even own Beast of Gores or Ungores or any of that. But um, I've got some pretty cool, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Come on, Gorgon. I've got a Gorgon. And I've got a Chaos Gargant that is actually a very, very sweet kit bash. It is a Dragon Ogre Chaos Gargant. And it's supposed to be a Chaos Gargant, but it takes the body of the Magma Droth from Fire Slayers. And it uses the upper body of the Gargant. And it uses the... Axe of corn from the Bloodthirster model. And oh my god, it's beautiful. I haven't painted that yet. But the idea behind this is um I painted all of my Minotaurs and everything. They're all gonna be red. And the reason why I did that is because I don't know, I get sick of brown and black. Like Minotaurs, I don't like when they paint them flesh tone. Like a lot of the Minotaurs are painted like Caucasian skin with brown tufts of hair, and I just don't think that looks good. And then, like, an all-black minotaur is like, okay, but it's not interesting. And a brown minotaur just looks like a regular bull, and you're like, okay, that's not really interesting. But red, red, I think, looks interesting. So I've decided to do that, and I'm super, super excited about it. The idea is that I have a Doom Bull, which is the leader, and a Dragon Ogre Shagath, and they, for whatever reason, grew up together or were raised together, and they decide that they got past their differences so other people can too, and they're slowly unifying different clans of Bulgors and Dragon Ogres, and they're forming one army. And I just like the idea of that. So what I'm doing is I've, I'm picking different color schemes to make them interesting. Because Bulgors and Dragon Ogres are mostly skin color, obviously, right? So, But they do have armor and some cloth and whatnot. So I decided to make the first faction um, blue with white, uh, like an underbite of teeth, zigzags, and that's their symbol. And... In total, I'm going to have three different tribes being brought together by this Shagath and Doom Bowl. And the first one is blue and white. And they're, of course, still red-skinned, but they've, they've got blue and white armor and whatnot. And there's six Doom Bulls, a Gorgon, and uh, I might end up putting a Dragon Ogre or three in there. 
then the next unit is green with a yellow stripe is their symbol. And right now they are six Doom Bulls and three uh, Dragon Ogres. And then probably the Chaos Gargant Dragon Ogre is going to be in that one. And then I was thinking about, you know, I might make a the third one. I haven't decided the third color. It's going to be blue and white, green and gold, and then whatever this next one is. I certainly can't do reds because their skin is already red, so um, that, I'm not doing that. I could do orange, but I don't want it to look weird. I don't want it to be like neon orange, so I might not do that. Of course, I may go back to my oldie but goodie purple. Man, I love purple. Purple looks awesome. But instead of doing like a rich purple, I might do like a pale purple. Do a um, like a medium purple color and then highlight it with a real pale purple and make it kind of a, a pastel purple. Might do that. But I haven't decided yet. The cool thing is, is the Dragon Ogre Shagath is also a kit bash. It is a, I think it's a um, Dracoline. It's the character from one of the starter sets. And it's this person sitting on a Dracoline. But it's been kitbashed to use a uh, Agroid Thermaturge as the top half. And the Dracoline as the bottom half. So he's pretty cool. He's got cloth draped down on him. And I've made three different stripes. The blue and white the green and gold, and then another one to show all three of these tribes are unified. So I think that's kind of cool. And if I feel like it, each one of these armies is about five or 600 points, the the blue set, the green set, and whatever this third one is. And uh, I might be able to just be like, huh, I'm just going to take the blue people this game. And this is just them fighting. And whatever they happen to have in their clan is whatever they happen to have. If it's mostly Doom Bulls, then whatever. If it's mostly Dragon Ogres or a mix or whatever. So, I just like this idea. I've never done an army made up of different smaller factions before. So, I think that's kind of cool. And I like the idea of them, these two brothers from another mother, if you'll excuse that phrase. They are uniting all the different clans of Doom Bulls and Shaggoths. And I'll probably end up getting some Beast of Gores and whatnot, but I haven't pulled the trigger on that yet. I Dragon Ogres and... Bulgors are the things that I have always lusted after in the Beasts of Chaos army. Always love these models. And the Gorgon and all that. The Beast of Gores and all that, I, you should probably know from hearing me by now that I am not into hordes at all. And I like bigger models and fewer model count. So, like Tyranids, I don't even have any painted Termagants or Hormagants. I just don't do that. I do like Ripper Swarms, and I've got probably a dozen of those bases painted, but I uh, always go with Gene Stealers or Tyranid Warriors for my troops. So that's a little bit of a digression, but uh, anyway, so that is basically what I've been up to. Uh, did I even play last? Oh, yeah, I played Brutality at the local club. So that's what I played. I played with my buddy TJ, and... Um, he, he tried it several years ago. I don't think he liked it that much, but the game has developed a lot more now that it's fully released. And um, he seemed to have fun. I mean, I hope, he, I hope he had at least some fun. It is hard for new players to realize just how freaking brutal and unforgiving the game is, though. Like I've said before, that, um, you know, Warhammer's kind of forgiving. You got a lot of bodies on the field. You roll a lot of dice. Things kind of average out. But, man, Brutality, you the dice will screw you just as much as, you know, your opponent will. And it's kind of funny 
And we were rolling criticals, critical fails and critical successes nonstop that night. It was crazy. He won the first game by a landslide. He beat me like 11 to 5 or something, which in 40K doesn't sound like you know, that bad. But in brutality, 11 to 5 is bogus. And uh, I'm pretty sure I had 5. I might have had less than that. And then the second game, I beat him, I think, 7-5 to five or something like that. It was closer, but I ended up beating him. And uh, a lot of that is crazy. Like, he'd roll two attacks and roll double ones in melee, which is critical hits. So those two attacks just landed four hits. And then I roll, like, two critical saves. And then that saves four hits. And uh, it was just... It was real back and forth, but it was pretty funny. And, um... Also, it was pretty funny, at one point we were playing in the Twilight Fields, and the Midnights, which are these ghostly cavalry, we had a realm effect go off, and these Midnights form a line across the whole board, and they're hunting for people, and anybody they catch who isn't hidden uh, is dead and removed from the game. And he ended up blocking me in this alleyway where my guys could not get away from the ghosts, which was pretty darn funny, and one of my guys got eaten by the ghost for that. So that, that was pretty funny. And uh, anyway, so I, I will take any opportunity to play Brutality. I'm very excited about it. We have one of our reviewers said he's starting filming on our second Brutality review. I've already had it reviewed by Skirmish War Games on YouTube. And um, now I'm going to be getting it by another guy. And now uh, a third one says they're going to do it. But you never know with people, you know. You don't know if they're going to do it. Anyway... Let's get on with the show. Make me shut up. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. On this Tesseract mailbox, we have a message from Chris at Facebook.com slash Pimpcron. He goes, Hey, Pimpcron. I just finished listening to episode 104, and I really was able to relate. I did five years in the Marine Corps and was an avid player before then. Once I was in the USMC, life got rough and entertainment options were limited. I ended up getting a few guys in my unit together and interested in 40k. It's not hard to convince Marines to buy Marines, as it turns out. To this day, I still stay in contact with them and even travel to play with my buddies now and again. We're all discharged at this point. I even introduced it to some friends at the VA, and the painting and model building really helps those of us who have anxiety, depression, or PTSD. Again, I made a gaming group with them, and we play Flames of War, Team Yankee, Bolt Action, and Warhammer in almost all of its forms. We even just started a Dark Heresy roleplay. We embrace being nerdy, and like you, the games have helped us ease our stress and get out to meet new people so we aren't just glued to our veteran friends and no one else. Thanks for the podcast, man. I just found you this summer, and listening during the last few months while I work rather than game has helped me immensely. Keep on keeping on, bro. Seriously? (laughs) Seriously. Sincerely, Chris. Well, thank you for your service, Chris. I greatly appreciate it. I have a lot of respect for the men and women that serve our country, and I, like I said, I really appreciate your service. I am also really happy that you're listening to the podcast. We've had quite a few new people joining us this summer, and that's exciting. I do have to say that in addition to episode 104, I'm too lazy to look it up, but there was <laughs> a segment with uh, my wife in the last two years at some point. I don't think it was a real talk. I think it was a, uh, well, here's an idea or something like that. And we did touch on the idea of doing 
hobbying as like a PTSD treatment or just a relaxing thing. And I often thought that, um, you know, wouldn't it be cool if they supplied veterans hospitals with, you know, basic starter kits or whatever, you know how they do, like, it'd be like three space Marines and some paint and brush or whatever that is. If, I always thought it'd be pretty cool if they could send those to the VA hospitals and maybe, you know, you might get some new customers if you're GW, you might get some new customers out of it. And if not, the least you can do is give somebody that's really badly injured something to do with their hands, you know, their their free time while they're waiting there. And hopefully it'd be another way to focus and be quiet and deal with the stresses they've dealt with and the trauma they've dealt with in a positive way. And, you know, they might be interested, even if they don't like painting, they might be like, what is this? And check out the lore and that might help them cope or whatever. I've heard a lot of different stories about people using Warhammer in different ways to improve their life and deal with things and cope and all of that. So I think it's a really good idea. Uh, Loremaster Alex, actually, we haven't spoke about him in a while, but uh, he always claimed that he had a really hard time learning to read and he just wasn't interested in it until he found out about Warhammer and got into Warhammer. I think it was third edition he got into it. And that was him as a young child that got into Warhammer and reading all the lore and the rule books and all of that stuff got him really excited and he got better at reading because he finally got excited about reading about something. So that's a pretty cool story too. Going back to the theme of service people or veterans playing Warhammer, boy, I know a lot of people that were in the military that have played Warhammer. In our gaming group alone, I would say it's a good 20 to 30% of the people that play in our gaming group have served in the military or whatever. I can think of many just off the top of my head. So it seems like that is a popular thing. It does seem like Wargaming has more veterans in it than Magic does or Heroclix or some of the other things. And um, I, I guess it's just because you've already been in the military, so that's exciting. But I also wonder if it's the pseudo-military strategy. I mean, Wargaming's not really military strategy, per se. It's not super realistic, but then again, I mean, there is strategy to it, and even if it's abstract, it's a still a version of strategy and of military strategy. So, I, obviously, it's not the same as tactics on the ground clearing rooms or whatever, but I just feel like that is an interesting demographic in our hobby, and there does seem to be a lot of veterans in Wargaming, which is pretty cool. I think that's neat. So I appreciate your message, and thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And um, I will see you on the next segment. Now, here's an idea. Hey, it's time for Well, Here's an Idea. And this one comes from one of our Patreon buddies, and it comes from Leroy Jenkins. He sent me a picture the other day of his peen. No, no. Of his friend's pe- No. He sent me a picture of a table they made in the pool for playing Warhammer and keeping cool in the summer. And I thought it was really neat, so I figured I'd share it. Did you know that pink foam board floats? Did you know that? Because it does. So he sent me some pictures of uh, his buddy playing Warhammer in the pool. And I thought that was really neat. They even put terrain on it. They put models on it and all that. 
And the pink foam board floated perfectly, he said. And it was very stable. And they got to enjoy the pool while they were playing. I thought that was a really, really neat idea. Now, uh, foam board, at least in my area, only comes in, I'm going to say, three foot wide at the maximum and six feet long. Now, I did not ask whether or not this was the case for him because they may actually be different sizes in different areas. But you could even just be whatever Home Depot you carry. But I got thinking about this and I was thinking, you know what? You could have a pretty cool game of Warhammer 40k if you take this foam board, you put a board, you know, you, you put the foam board down in the water so that it floats, you roll your dice and all of that, and you get your digital download rules, you know, from the web store or whatever, and you download the PDF and you put it on your tablet, you get a waterproof cover for your tablet. I mean, a real waterproof cover. And that seems like that would be pretty cool. Now, the problem that I see, and this is what I warned him about, is that you don't want the Chaos God of Melanoma to show up. So you probably should wear some sunscreen because war gamers are, by and large, pretty pale and pasty. So we got to be sure that we lather up with some uh, sunscreen. But I thought that was really interesting. So I was thinking, where else could we play Warhammer? Where other unconventional places? Well, there was a time when I was, um, this is, I don't know if it's going to be boring or not for you, but <laughs> when I built my porch with on my house, my, my porch actually has a concrete foundation that's tied into the foundation of my house. And when we built that, before we, we put the, we did the blocks and the footer and all that, but we actually had somebody come pour the concrete slab for the porch. And before they did that, we filled in the foundation, the the space in what will end up being underneath my porch. I don't even know what you say. I don't want to say I filled in the foundation because you're going to think that I filled in the blocks with dirt, but I filled in the area, the footprint inside the blocks of where my porch will be or would be. It's, it's here now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and before they poured it and we had some really cool stuff growing there. And I'm not talking about weed. I'm just talking about there was like, um, this is even before, this is just before I got into Warhammer. And I remember thinking, man, that looks so cool. The dirt that we had put in there wasn't quite leveled off. And after waiting a couple weeks or whatever for the concrete to be poured, we ended up having some grass grow and things like that. And it looked like such a cool diorama. And like I said, at the time I wasn't into Warhammer, so I didn't think of Warhammer at the time, but I did think about like, man, if I was a little kid, I'd play with army men in that or whatever. So then I played with army men in that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But um, it was really cool. And I was thinking, man, I used to play with my Legos as a kid, like out in the grass and pretend it was a jungle. I've often thought, and just James and I have discussed doing it in the past, like what if we did play in the yard? It seems dangerous because your models will potentially get lost in the grass or whatever, but it could make some pretty cool terrain. And matter of fact, thinking of other places to play, what about the beach? I feel like the beach, you could make it, specifically if it was a secluded beach, not like a busy Ocean City beach, you know, during the summer with a million people around you. But if you really were at like a somewhat quiet beach and you decided to sculpt the terrain and make a board and all of that the way you wanted using the sand. I think that would be really, really cool. 
Now, part of me cringes at all these thoughts. I don't really like Leroy... Did I call him Leroy Johnson earlier? I hope not. Leroy Jenkins. I don't like the idea of my models getting wet in Leroy Jenkins' idea. Uh, I don't know why, because I don't think anything's going to happen to them if they get wet, but I just don't like them getting wet. Then, I don't want them getting dirty if I plan the yard. <laughs> but, once again, I don't really see how it's going to hurt them. And then I think, ooh, I don't want my model sandy. But, once again, I don't, unless you're, like, humping all over your models with sandy fingers, I don't really see how that's going to hurt anything. So, I guess... I'm so used to miniatures being nice and clean and, and kept nice that the idea of putting them in actual real world, like outdoor environments kind of bothers me on a, I don't know. I want to say germaphobe level. I don't really think that's what that is, but it's a, uh, it's very interesting. Anyway, I actually thought a long time ago of making a frame specifically talking about the whole sandboard I was just talking about. I thought about making a 4x6 frame, wooden frame, and putting some sand in it. Like, make it out of 2x4s or something, so there's some depth to the frame. And you'd have to back the bottom of it with plywood or whatever. I mean, this is not going to be any small task. And it would not be super light. You can't put it in an overhead compartment or anything like that. But I often thought, what if you did fill it, like, halfway with sand? And you know, you could shape it, oh, let's make a hill here, or let's make a mountain there, or whatever, and I just thought that'd be really cool. I don't know how this would work either, but if the sand was just slightly damp, it would stick together better, it wouldn't be all powdery and fine, and I feel like you could really make something out of that. I don't know, I've never tried it, but I just feel like that would be pretty cool. You could make hills and valleys and trenches and rivers and all that, now, of course, you're stuck playing on a sand board. You're not playing in a woods or whatever. But I'd like to know, have any of you ever played outside with your miniatures using the ground as terrain or something like that? Because the idea of playing in a pool with a floating table like Leroy sent me was pretty cool. And it got me thinking, where else could I play Warhammer? Then... That got me thinking, here's another idea. What if we played miniature Warhammer? And what I mean by that is you could play it like on the bus. You could play it in an airplane, whatever. What somebody should do is make like a one foot by one foot case that opens up to be a two foot by one foot case, right? And there's a bunch of little pegs. You might even want to get pegboard, but I think the holes are spaced too far. Oh, Legos! Get Legos. And what you do... Oh my god, I just solved my own problem. This this has me excited. I I, uh, I should probably go procreate with my wife. I gotta strike when the iron's hot. Because this idea just got me excited. Uh, <laughs> no, no more children. Anyway, uh, so what you do is you make like a fold-up one-foot-by-one-foot case. And you fill it with Legos. Like you know, the real thin pieces of Lego, so you could, you'd probably make it all green. And then what you do is you take Epic 40k, the old Epic sets, which I just sold my set a couple months ago. Um, I had a brand new, like, practically still shrink-wrapped Epic set. And um, you take those individual, if you remember Epic Warhammer, they had, um, like, little strips of five Space Marines, and that was a unit. 
And each Space Marine had like a little circle base and it plugged into this strip of basing with circles. Well, what if you glued each one of those Space Marines onto one of those little round peg, like single peg, little teeny round Legos? Uh, I think they use them like for flowers sometimes or I don't know how to describe it, but you probably know what I'm talking about. The little round single peg thin pieces. You glue them onto that. And you could use loose Legos to assemble a board with different terrain and hills and little trees and all of that. And then you could even rep- you could either represent every Space Marine as a unit of Space Marines, or you could do, you know, every Space Marine is two Space Marines, or every Space Marine is five Space Marines, whatever. But there's little land raiders in Epic. There's all sorts of little stuff. And you could play a full game of Warhammer with a buddy on a bus or in your car while you're waiting for something. And then everything would stick right where you left it because they'd be glued onto Lego pieces. And oh my god, I love this idea so much. I'm so tempted to buy some Epic models and do this. I I don't think I'd ever use it, (laughs) but I don't really travel a lot, so... But man, it's a good idea. You you guys should definitely do that. So I need you to make one of these cases and do that so I can see it. And number two, I need you to tell me if you ever played outside or in a pool or something like that. Because that's really interesting to me. I just, oh man, I really don't want my models dirty. And that sounds so stupid because I don't think there any actual damage would come to them. But I definitely don't feel like having my models dirty or wet or sandy. I don't know. I might reconsider at some point. But that epic idea of the foldable Lego set. Oh my god. I'm so excited for that. All right. Later. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. On this edition of Real Talk with the Pentcron, I start pointing fingers... I say maybe we as players are the problem with Warhammer, not Warhammer itself. So, I want to start off by saying that I am in no way being coerced into saying this by a certain wargaming company. You hear complaints every single day about Games Workshop. People complain that GUW doesn't listen to their customers, that they hike up prices, and don't proofread their own rules. If we're all being honest right now, I think we can all admit that they get a bad rap as a company. Everybody holds them to too high of a standard, and I truly do feel that we are just too harsh on this wargaming company. This segment is entirely my own opinion, and you should not think for even a moment that I am being threatened into writing this by any nefarious wargaming manufacturer. I feel like Games Workshop is the victim here. Players love the claim that GW doesn't care about them, but that just isn't true. Why would a company hate their customers? That makes no sense. Games Workshop makes the finest miniatures in the world and has set the standard for the entire industry, as well as they've led the industry for, what, 20 years now? 30 years? I say 20. Oh man, 40 years? (laughs) They have said themselves that they really are just a miniatures company. They never wanted to get into rules making at all. They originally started just making models. But after the unwashed masses saw how top-notch this company was at sculpting boobies 
on Giant Chaos Nasties. They begged and pleaded GW to also make rules to use these big-breasted models. Games Workshop is the reluctant hero, the everyman who never asked to be in the codex-making business. Then all they get is hate when the players don't see the genius behind their rules. It is the players, when you think about it, who have started the tournament scene, which is a twisted nightmare version of the beer and pretzels, hey, I'm taking seven riptides and you can't stop me, kind of friendly play that GW envisions. We are grown adults and should be allowed to have the power to bring what we want without having to worry about balance or points like little children. It is the players who take every chance to bend rules like children and act like they don't know what Games Workshop meant when they wrote this rule or that rule or that codex or this rules interaction. Bitch, please. We shouldn't have to bother this poor company with our rules bending. Read what they wrote, put yourself in their shoes, and use common sense to assume what they meant. How hard is this, people? I mean, when they write rules... Do they really have to spell it out for you? And for any of you who might think that I have two red shirts from GW that just happen to show up at my residence a day or so about 4 p.m. and give me the old rough up, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you'd get that idea. Now, pyrovores. Let's let's take this common fallacy and flip it on its head. Pyrovores are actually pretty good. This is an example of how the players twist everything, and GW really is the victim in all of this. I hear all kinds of complaints about Games Workshop not giving enough love to certain quote-unquote bad units in the game. It is implied that GW doesn't know what they're doing when it comes to writing rules. No unit is more maligned than the poor Pyrovore from an underrated codex, the Tyranids Codex. So, you say Pyrovores are terrible, are they? Well, let me paint you a little picture to open your eyes. Pyrovores take a Tyrannocyte, right? And they deep strike down on a full unit of tightly grouped grots holding an objective. They get out and light that unit up. You don't even roll to hit with the Pyrovores, right? And you're wounding on a two up. And they get no saves of any kind from the grots. And you'd only have to kill another unit or three to make up for the points of those Pyrovores. I always kind of feel like GW has this secret rule where you can tell how good a unit is in Warhammer by how phallic it is. And if you take a look at the Pyrovores, this unit must be awesome. It's got a big old dick on its head. Anyway, I'm digressing. (laughs) What if that unit of Pyrovores gave you first blood? Or gave you Linebreaker? And you take the objective for the rest of the game to win... Now, how bad are Pyrovores? You see, Pyrovores are actually a decent unit if you just give them a chance, and they're at an incredible sales price. What What, what was that? Oh, uh, the, um, the smart listener will head over to Games Workshop's website right now and buy several Pyrovores without any sort of store discount or other incentive. Matter of fact, all it takes is one smart player to see the genius behind this, and you'll be seeing top-tier tournament winners taking Pyrovores left and right. The eye-rolling phrase you'll constantly hear from whack players will be, Here's my army of... insert cheese. And of course, my allied contingent of Pyrovores. I'm sorry, does this sound funny to you? 
then you don't get it, buddy. I'm a cutting-edge Warhammer blogger and podcaster, and I see beyond the realm of the possible and deep into the impossible, so that's why I'm giving you a glimpse into the next Death Star unit. It has nothing to do with Charles and Mike showing up yesterday and having a talk with me. A talk with their fists. So, what if they're still here staying in my guest bedroom? I like having guests, and they are welcome anytime. You got you you guys are welcome anytime. Really nice guys. When you when you look past the dental work I need now. Games Workshop's pricing is overstated. I will never get why people complain about the price of our hobby. It is a life enriching hobby where you learn real world skills like how to not manage your budget, how to sneak secret model kits into your house. And even how to very convincingly lie to your spouse about purchases. People complain about the prices going up and up. So what if players dread every time the troop box is remade? Just because they get the same number of models or less for double the price? But did you even stop to think about the added value of what's in the new box that you didn't get in the old one? Let's take a look just for a second. In all the new boxes, you get the new size of bases that GW has arbitrarily decided belongs on that model this week. You also get a ton of cool bits of extra customization to your models, like some piles of spent ammo rounds or a purity seal or two, or even an extra head. When they remake a model kit, and they include all these special little additions, how do you even put a price on that? Those are gifts from your loving wargaming company, and the price shouldn't even be considered. I, for one, think that prices should be higher because Mike and Charles say they get higher commissions from higher prices. Oh, no, sorry, I, I misunderstood. They say, what? Oh, no, um, so in conclusion, we as players need to stop bitching all the time and emailing GW and calling GW and asking questions all the time. In general, just keep buying stuff regardless of the price. Stop acting like you don't know what they meant from the wording of their rules and gladly take whatever they give you. As I said, this is all the truth and not in any way related to Mike standing behind me, watching me as I record this right now. Call the cops.